0: Amen to that. Well, if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles with me. And uh, we're going to open to Ecclesiastes. So if you were in doubt that this church ever preaches from the Old Testament, um, that has now been cast away. For we have gone through Joshua, we are going through Jonah with Josh, and now we're going to hit on Ecclesiastes as well. We're going to look at chapter 12, verses 13 through 14. So if you'll turn there. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are making their way down the aisles right now, and all you have to do is throw your hands in the air like you just don't care, and they would be happy to give you one to use or to keep if you don't have your own. Now, the church at large, Protestant evangelicalism, struggles from a lack of the fear of the Lord. The fact that the scriptures constantly remind believers to fear the Lord Testifies to this weakness. Pastor and author Steve Lawson wisely observed that many Christians want a God who, quote, makes us feel comfortable, one we can control and manage, even use, end quote. And because of this, he says, many churches have become nothing more than entertainment centers, giving slick performances to growing numbers of mesmerized but unproductive churchgoers. Such devices may bring people into the church, but they do not transform them once they arrive. When was the last time you heard somebody described as a God-fearer? That man or that woman, that that was a God-fearing person. How many people would want on their headstone, He feared God, she feared God, or put that in their obituary? The idea of fearing God is not really appealing to many, it's far more appealing and comfortable to have a God who is tolerant of our sins, gentle and accommodating. Those who have this view treat church like it's a social alternative to the world, that it's a place to make friends, a pickup joint for singles, or a place where you go to get kind of your weekly pep talk and boost. They profess a commitment to King Jesus with their lips, but easily set aside his commands because they hold them in such low respect. They treat God as an add-on to their life rather than the very center of it. And so, The danger of not fearing the Lord is that there will be little to no godliness. And as we'll see in our text this morning, people will be missing the main ingredient for true spiritual growth. So if you're able, would you please stand with me? In honor of the reading of God's word, and follow along as I read from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 through 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Would you please bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Father, this text is very piercing, as your word says it is. It divides down to the very soul of our being. It exposes everything in our lives. It reminds us that everything is laid bare before you. It's humbling. It's sobering. Lord, I pray as we just got done singing that your word would do a mighty work in us, that it would help us to see ourselves rightly, to see you better, and to grow, that we would experience true godly transformation. And I pray that you would work despite me and my human frailties, that your word would come clearly through, that you would receive all glory and honor as we magnify you through your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Ecclesiastes is a book written by King Solomon, and it does read like a memoir. Even though he was the wisest man who ever lived, he blew it a lot in his life. He struggled with a lot of significant sin and failures. We learn from the book of 1 Kings that there was one area in particular that he struggled with that led to a whole host of issues. Despite the clear command to only have one wife and to for that wife to be from, uh, the Israelite nation, he went on to marry 700 wives and have 300 concubines who then influenced him and turned his heart away from God. Now that's not like narrowly missing the exit on the interstate, that's like blowing way past it with, your, with the pedal to the metal. He had significant struggles with lust that placed him in a place where he was influenced by his wives to turn away from God into greater sin. And even though Solomon reigned over Israel at the height of prosperity, the consequences of his sin would devastate his life and the lives of others. And for those of you who are unmarried and are wanting to get married, this is a good reminder that who you marry in life will have one of the greatest impacts on your spiritual well-being. So be discerning. By the grace of God... Solomon does come to his senses, and after he repents, he seeks to help others not make the same mistakes. Specifically, he speaks to young people in this book. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd very much rather learn from someone else's mistakes than do it myself, especially when I'm doing home DIY renovations. Most of us understand that when you see your sibling growing up get a spanking, you say, I'm not going to go do the thing he just did. So Solomon helps us by answering one of the most important questions of all time. What is the meaning of life? You see this all throughout the book. At the beginning and the end, Solomon despairingly declares, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that word vanity in the Hebrew means empty. It means pointless, all for nothing. It's like the steam off a cup of coffee or when you see your breath on a cold day like today. It's there one moment, gone the next. And what he means by saying this is that all of the good things in life don't last. It never truly satisfies. So what's the point of doing anything in life when it doesn't last? Today, people are led to believe that the American dream is the ideal thing in life. That you should get a good career You should get a nice house, get married, have two kids at least, that you should get a dog, have two cars, and so on, and have a nice retirement plan. And then when the day comes to retire, you ride off into the sunset and enjoy the last chapter of your life. That's the key to being happy and successful. But Solomon says, nope, it's not going to work. It won't work, I guarantee it. Solomon tried to find meaning in everything that would bring happiness or seemed to bring happiness. He partied. He got drunk, he sought to buy all the nicest stuff you could ever want, he tried to satisfy himself with entertainment and sex, he also spent a lot of time learning, he poured himself into his work and building all sorts of projects, but it all turned out empty. And the cherry on top, is, Solomon goes, guess what, I'm going to die anyway, so what's the point? I can build up all this stuff, but I'm going to die and it's going to be somebody else's, so why bother? This reminds me of a package of gum that I used to get when I was a kid. It was always in the checkout aisle at the grocery store, and it was this fruit stripe gum. It's colorful; had a little zebra on it. But it was the—it smelled really good, and it tasted good, but it lasted for thirty seconds. You had to keep cramming stick after stick in your mouth to keep it going, and before you know it, the package was gone. But that's what Solomon is getting at here with vanity of vanities. In a sinful and fallen world, all good things are like that piece of gum. You enjoy it for a little bit only for it to become tasteless and wearisome at the end. So what's the answer? What's the point of life? So, where our verses, verses 13 through 14 come in. He, he gives us his conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So in short, life is unsatisfying apart from God. Life in the midst of a fallen world can only be enjoyed when you are a worshiper of God. That is, you fear him, you obey him, knowing that in the end, God is going to judge everything, everyone for what they have done. And so from these two verses, Solomon identifies two truths that we must embrace in order to grow in godliness. It's only when you embrace these truths that the true spiritual transformation will happen. The first thing you need to embrace is that worship is essential. Worship is essential. Solomon abruptly concludes his book writing, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Which is his way of wrapping it up and saying, Enough said. Here's the bottom line. And then he gives the two commands. Fear God, keep his commandments. Why? Why those two commands? Why fear and why obey? Because this is the duty, the whole duty of man. And what he means by that is that this this idea of worship, because fearing God and, and obeying Him is the essence of worship, it is the whole reason for which you exist. It is the reason for which you were created. Therefore, it is the essence of life. It is essential to life. These two commands represent worship, Not just worship in general. Oftentimes we think about worship, we think singing. But worship is so much more than just singing. It's not the lack of singing, but it's so much more than that. Fearing God represents the right heart of worship, and I want to look at that first. The Bible has a lot to say about fearing God. It's specifically mentioned at least 150 times directly and countless other times indirectly. But what does it mean to fear God? All of us know what it's like to be afraid, right? We, we all have different things that we might be afraid of. You might be afraid of the dark, spiders, snakes, public speaking, dying, flying, oath, etc. Right? There's a lot of things. Clowns. But fear is that strong and unpleasant feeling that causes concern, when you feel threatened. But is that the same feeling we're supposed to feel toward God? The short answer is yes. The primary term used in the Hebrew is yareh, and it means being frightened or threatened. And guess what? God is the most threatening thing in all the world. You cannot come up with something more threatening than an all-powerful holy God. But it seems strange for Christians to talk about being afraid of God. After all, we we have been saved from his wrath and we are adopted as his children. So in order to reconcile these truths, people will often define fearing God as this idea of reverence and awe. And it certainly includes that. But the meaning of fear never fully evaporates. I think there's a couple reasons why the idea of fear is often left out of the definition. First, Satan doesn't want us to fear God in a biblical way because then it leads to growth and godliness. He doesn't want us to live a godly life. Second, I think living in a country that is a constitutional republic desensitizes us to fearing authority because we have a government that's run by the people and not the other way around. Third, we often overreact and misunderstand the meaning, or we overreact to the abuses of fearing God. And lastly, we often grow over-familiar with God because he doesn't always execute his judgments in an immediate and obvious ways like he did in the Old Testament. If you steal something, God doesn't usually make the ground open up and swallow you, right? And so we kind of become over-familiar and desensitized to fearing God. So I'd like to define what it means to fear God and then go back up and support it with Scripture. This is how I would define the fear of God. The fear of God is when my heart and mind respond solemnly to God and His works with faith, love, and a consuming desire to glorify Him in all that I do. That's a lot. I'll say it again a little later, so hang on. But as the definition explains, Christians need to fear God because of who he is and what he has done. Exodus 15, 11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, fearful in praises, working wonders? All of God's characteristics and all of his actions in the past, present, and future produce fear-filled worship in his people. For example, God has the authority to do whatever he wants. He flooded the whole world and saved only eight. He asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. Not asked, he commanded. He took Job's possessions, the lives of his children, and his health. He killed Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, for offering unauthorized fire in the tabernacle. He destroyed generations of Israelites in the wilderness Before he let the rest go in the promised land, he struck down Ananias and Sapphira for lying. And as a father would his child, God disciplines those he loves in various ways, whether through hardship, sickness, and even death. In addition to that, God's being, his person, and his mind are far greater than we could ever comprehend. He is holy, transcendent. And he is beyond comparison and imagination. His wisdom in creation and all of its wonders is amazing and beyond anything any engineer or artist could ever dream of doing. He sustains the entire universe, every star and planet, and every sand and every molecule, every beating heart in this room, just by a mere thought and a mere word. He is everlasting without beginning, Or end, he ordains all things that have come to pass and will come to pass and does so skillfully in such a way to bring about his greatest glory and your greatest good. He is present in all places at all times. He sees everything you do and knows every thought you've ever had or will have, which ought to be a fearsome thing since Ecclesiastes 12.14 says God will judge us for everything that we have done including believers who have been saved from his wrath. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. God is a consuming fire who hates sin and will repay the wicked in his wrath and judgment. Yet, at the same time, he is good and just and lavishes his chosen people with love, grace, and blessings. And I think amazingly, astoundingly, all of these characteristics and more the same holiness and splendor that Isaiah saw and was terrified by, were present in the human flesh, though veiled, when Jesus walked on the earth. When the disciples saw Jesus exercise his power over storms, demons, sickness, and even death, they were afraid. They didn't just marvel, they were afraid of who he was and what he did. So when you start to take in, and this is just a smattering, when you start to take in what the Bible says about God, you solemnly recognize that our awe and reverence will always be mixed and mingled with a little bit of fear. It's very much like that feeling you would have if you barely missed a destructive tornado passing by, tossing cars in the air like matchbox cars and ripping trees and houses to shreds. You see its destructive power, you recognize that your life could have been lost, and then your attention is directed to the power of God behind and manifested in that tornado. You would feel both fear and a sense of reverential awe. Now just to be clear, fearing God is not just some outdated command found only in the Old Testament. There are several verses that speak to it in the New the Greek term for fear is phobeto or phobos. It's where we get the word for phobia. Matthew 10, 28 says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Philippians two twelve says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, with your knees knocking together. Now, one of the fascinating things about biblical fear is that it actually draws us to God. It draws us to cling to him rather than casting us away from him. It doesn't seem like that would be the natural thing, but that's the way the Bible describes it. There is a a biblical tension that we have to balance. And Jerry Bridges noted in his book, The Joy of Fearing God, that the fear of God is kind of like, The two forces we often feel in this life, the centripetal and centrifugal forces that operate in physics. These are opposing forces that you feel like if you were to tie a string to a rock and swing it around your head. Or if you were to turn your car really sharply around a curve, you feel centrifugal and centripetal forces at work. On one hand, centripetal force keeps the the rock and keeps you from flying off into the distance and the centrifugal force keeps you from getting too close. In the same way, the fear of God both pushes us away and at the same time draws us toward Him. It's fascinating how it works. Psalm 130 verses 3-4 through describes this tension. It says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the rhetorical answer is nobody, no one. That should cause fear and send us running away. But then the psalmist says in verse 4, But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. See, forgiveness draws us into the Father's embrace. But at the same time, God's attributes hold us at a fearfully reverent distance. Those two forces are always acting in the heart of a believer. And like many teachings in scripture, balance is required so that we don't fall into error on either side. One side of error is to fear God in a legalistic way that distorts the gospel. This type of fear leads someone to obey so that God won't get angry. It treats God like he's the mythological God Zeus. That if you step over the line, I'm going to strike you with a lightning bolt. That was the mindset of the wicked servant from the parable of the talents. He hid his master's money in the ground instead of investing it because he was afraid and thought the master was a harsh man. He had a distorted view of God and did not love him. But the opposite ditch to avoid is not fearing God at all, to become over-familiar with him. We can know that's happening when we don't hate our sin like we, like we should. When we think we can love two masters. When we coddle our sin to our chest and try to hold on to Jesus at the same time. We often don't hate our sin like we should because we don't have a God in our mind who hates sin. So now that we have a little bit more biblical description of fear of the Lord, let me repeat the definition. The fear of God is when my heart and mind respond solemnly to God and His works with faith, love, and a consuming desire to glorify Him in all that I do. The 20th century pastor and theologian John Murray wrote, The fear of God is the soul of godliness. A wise commentator noted that it is the conduct that derives From worship, our conduct derives from worship of fearing God. That's why Solomon places this command to fear him before he says, obey him. Because the knowledge of God leads to obedience. Fearing God is the fountain from which obedience flows. So that leads us to the right conduct of worship, which is obedience. Keeping his commandments. And that's a pretty straightforward command, right? Right? It's easy to understand, but we do know by experience, not always easy to execute, not always easy to do it. Jesus warned his disciples in the garden, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we can all relate to the apostle Paul's disgust for sin as we wrestle with it when he wrote, "O wretched man that I am. It's pretty easy to notice blatant disobedience in your life, so I think it'll be more helpful just to talk briefly in a way that helps us discern counterfeit obedience. Just like when a cashier holds up a $20 bill to the light to check to see if it's fake, you can hold up our obedience to the light of God's word to see if it's genuine or not. The first counterfeit form of obedience is called partial obedience. This is when we don't obey God's commands fully, but still think God is pleased. However, unlike school, where B's and C's still get degrees... God is not pleased unless anything is 100%. The child who cleans part of their room and stuffs everything else in their closet and under the bed is only partially obeying their parent. Parents who rebuke their children and use the rod but don't seek to shepherd the heart of the child are only partially parenting. The person who says, sorry, instead of saying, will you please forgive me, is only half-heartedly reconciling. The person who tells a white lie or omits the full truth when they're doing their tax returns by rounding up or rounding down when convenient is not telling the truth. Partial obedience is tempting because we often rationalize it to make it better than it sounds, but it doesn't pass God's standard. You can put lipstick on a pig, but at the end of the day, it's still a pig. The other form of of fraudulent obedience we would call is postponed obedience. This is what's knowing what is right to do, but waiting until it's more convenient to do it. This happens when we are confronted with our sin, but we are unwilling to take the radical steps to repent. This is the child who says, yeah, mom, I'll take out the trash after I'm done playing my video game. This is the unmarried person who says, well, I know I shouldn't make out or sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend, but we're going to get married someday, it's fine. Or this is the person who says, well, I know I should go to church, but I'm filling the blank. Or this is the person who says, I know I should share the gospel. I'm just too scared to do it. Postponed obedience presumes upon the grace of God by believing that he will patiently wait on you and that he will let you live long enough to do it. It wrongly believes God won't discipline you while you delay. Last form of fraudulent obedience is called fake obedience. It's attempting to carry out God's commands with the wrong resources and the wrong motives. You can determine if your motives for obedience are wrong by asking, "Why am I sad about my sin? Why does it bother me?" In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 10, Paul tells us that there's actually two types of sorrow you can have over your sin. The first kind is is called worldly sorrow. And it's a very selfish, motivated sorrow because it's more concerned about the consequences or being embarrassed by your sin. The second kind of sorrow is is godly sorrow. And this is a sorrow that is first and foremost concerned with the fact that your sin is against God. And it produces a hatred for sin and an eagerness to make things right for His glory. So it's important to examine, when we look at our obedience, the motive behind it. But it's also important to look at the resources we're using when we try to obey. When we try to obey in our own strength, we are not obeying and pleasing the Lord. Instead, we're supposed to be relying on the Holy Spirit and the common means of grace. Ephesians chapter 4 says that there's three parts to genuine obedience. First, put off your old self, which is stop sinning. The second is to be renewed in your mind, which is where the Holy Spirit does his work through God's word to transform your desires and your thoughts about sin. And the third is to put on the new self, to put on righteousness, to do the right thing. These three parts are like a three-legged stool. If you take one of them away, the stool falls over. You need all three. If you try to obey without having your mind renewed by the Spirit, then you are just living a moralistic life. You're not doing it for God. If you try to put off sin but don't replace it with the right action, then you'll just sin in a different way. This means that the husband who angrily snaps at his wife and kids only truly obeys when he has stopped his verbal assaults, puts on kindness, tenderness, and forgiveness in its place, Because Jesus Christ has freely forgiven him of far more and far greater sins than anyone else. This means that the person who struggles with sexual lusts puts off the greed and covetousness and idolatry behind pornography, adultery, and fornication. And puts on self-control and contentment in its place because they have found satisfaction in their Savior It means the person who struggles with their tongue, with gossiping or slandering or telling dirty jokes and using foul language, truly obeys when they speak what is only good for building people up as fits the occasion so that the body of Christ is built up and edified. See, the fear of God is the ultimate motivator and the ultimate rubric for assessing our obedience to the Lord. It helps motivate us to know that in the end, everything we do will be tested and judged by God in the end. This leads us to our final point, the the second truth that we must embrace if we want to grow in godliness. And that is that judgment is inescapable. Solomon concludes his book with the ultimate motivation for fearing the Lord and obeying his commandments. Verse 14 reminds us of the universal and inescapable reality of this judgment. says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, there are two different types of judgments described in the Bible with two very different purposes. One for the righteous and one for the unrighteous. One before the judgment seat of Christ and one before the great white throne. One for measuring out reward and one for measuring out wrath. So let's look at the judgment of the righteous first. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10, you have perhaps the most concise description of the judgment of the righteous. Paul wrote, "For we must appear, all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil." Kind of sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 14, and Paul is talking to Christians. So what does he mean that we will receive what is due? Well, he actually gives some more detail in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 15. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, talking about the gospel, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So Christians will stand before Jesus one day and give an account for every word we have ever said every thought that has ever passed through our minds and every action we have ever taken, whether good or bad, and we will watch as rewards will be given or taken away as a result. The ultimate reward of eternal life will never be taken away to genuine Christians, but additional rewards meant to be enjoyed in the new heavens and new earth for all eternity will be at stake. This is a pretty good motivating reason to fear the Lord. And why we should strive to grow in godliness. However, the judgment of the wicked will be very different. This is described in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The terrifying reality and fate of those who reject Jesus as Savior and King of their lives is a future day when they will stand before the great white throne and be judged. They will be given a special resurrected body made to last through suffering Before they are thrown into the lake of fire with Satan and all his demons to endure the wrath of God without pause, without relief, without hope for all eternity. The difference between the fate of the wicked and the righteous is the fear of the Lord. Those who fear the Lord will desperately cry out to God for mercy and salvation and find it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross to save sinners from the wrath of God so that they might fear the one who punishes rather than the punishment itself. But those who do not fear God will continually harden their hearts against the only one who can save them. The famous 18th century revivalist preacher Jonathan Edwards soberly said in his most famous sermon, almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. Such a sobering reality reminds or demands that we examine ourselves to see if we truly fear the Lord. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. That means look at the pattern of your life. We're not asking for and looking for perfection, but we're looking at the overall trajectory. The Christian life is very much like a stock market graph. You'll have some high highs and some low lows. But if you zoom out over the period of your whole life, the overall trajectory will be up to be more like Christ. Do you look like a God-fearer? Or are you a hypocrite? One who talks the talk, who wears the Christian mask, but your obedience is always partial, postponed, or fake. Jesus warns us that many people will appear before the Lord one day, and they will think that they are saved. When they are not, because they do not fear the Lord. And He will say, Away with you. I never knew you. The parable of the soils reminds us that many people seem to respond well to the gospel at first. They're like a plant that springs up initially from the seed of the gospel, only to be choked out by the scorching sun or thorns and thistles, the pains, the cares, and the pleasures of this life. Some people may seem to fear God and turn to Jesus, but it only turns out to be the fact that they were afraid of hell. But they didn't want actually Jesus. But all genuine believers will have some level of fear of the Lord. It may be a little ember, or it might be a nicely maintained log fire. But wherever you are on the spectrum, you must continually fan the flame. So how do you do that? First thing you need to do is pray. In Psalm eighty-six eleven, David prays, "'Teach me your way, O Lord.'" That I may walk in your truth, unite my heart to fear your name. The fear of the Lord is a gift from God. The Holy Spirit renews your heart and mind to fear Him. Therefore, we must continually ask the Lord to help us fan the flame in dependent faith. Second thing we need to do is consume God's Word. Is this a read your Bible more sermon? Yes, it is. Read read your Bible more. In Deuteronomy 4:10 Moses told the people of Israel, "The Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so." Fear is learned through hearing his word. This is why reading your Bible This is why fellowshipping with other believers. This is why hearing preaching every Sunday. Why attending life groups. Why attending the 930 equipping classes are all so important. Each of these are God's common means of grace that can be used to put another log on the fire of fearing the Lord. We must intentionally work at being influenced by God's word rather than being passively influenced by the constant barrage of worldly messaging that comes from social media, movies, the news, and worldly behavior we see every day. If you are not intentionally seeking to put yourself in a place to be conformed to the image of God, then you are being conformed to the world. There is a battle waging, and if you're not active in the fight, you are losing the third thing we need to do is live ready to die. Live ready to die. God has numbered our days. Our lives are short and none of us know when we will die or when the Lord will return. So Moses prayed in Psalm 90:12, "Teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom." We ought to live as if today is the last day we have. This means that you repent of sin and don't let it linger any longer. When someone comes over to your house, what do you usually do in preparation? You clean up, you tidy up, lest you be embarrassed and people see your dirty clothes strewn everywhere and your dirty dishes in the sink, right? How much more so ought we to clean up our spiritual life in order that we do not shrink in fear at the judgment seat of Christ? Every day, we need to be living as if we're ready to die. And lastly, you need to go to the throne of grace. To grow in the fear of the Lord, you need to approach his throne regularly in confession of your sin. Since Jesus is our great high priest who died for us and mediates for us, Hebrews 4, 16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Now, this is not a cocky, arrogant swagger that you approach the throne of grace with. It's a confidence that says, I don't have to be afraid of being cast away from him in wrath. But why should you draw near? Because it says that we may receive mercy and find grace to, to help in time of need. We need to draw near to the throne of grace so that we may find mercy and forgiveness and grace to help us fight temptation. We can do this practically now as we prepare for communion. If you don't have the cracker and juice with you, uh, just as the our ushers are going to walk down the aisles here in a moment, you can raise your hand and they would be happy to give you the elements. And without using the word, Paul reminds us to fear the Lord when we take communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that they may not be condemned along with the world. So in this passage, Paul warns against taking communion in an unworthy manner. All of us probably feel unworthy, especially after reading a text like Ecclesiastes 12, uh, to take communion because we all struggle with sin. But the presence of a struggle is a good sign. To actually be unworthy refers to living hypocritically. It means to profess, to believe in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection while going on sinning deliberately in your life without care. Paul is writing in the context to the Corinthians who were partying and getting drunk during communion and not sharing with those who had nothing to eat. There was no struggle with sin. They were taking communion without confessing and forsaking ongoing sin in their life. If you do that, you are guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. If you threw the American flag on the floor and stomped on it, you would be guilty of dishonoring everything that that represents to our country. And people would be aghast and horrified. How much more so than when we take the symbols of Jesus' sacrifice and trample on them by living an unrepentant lifestyle? We would be dishonoring Christ's life that much more. So much more serious. Paul says that some of the Corinthians had suffered judgment in the form of illness and even death. Now the Greek word for judgment does not refer to damnation and hell. He makes that clear in the context at the end. And he says that even those who have died were disciplined so that they would not be condemned. God takes communion so seriously that he takes people out of this world to keep them from profaning his name. So communion, is, it is supposed to be a joyous celebration, but it's also one that should cause us to examine our hearts and fear the Lord. So if you have unreconciled sin in your life right now, please take a moment to confess that to the Lord and ask for his forgiveness before you take. I would encourage anyone of you who has ongoing sin that you cannot reconcile right now, to abstain from taking communion until you can make things right. So at this time, why don't you go ahead and remove the cellophane foil, whatever this is, from the bottom of the cracker. And as we take communion, we remember the Lord's sacrifice that saved us from the penalty and power of our sins and washed our consciences white as snow, as Paul wrote in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. Go ahead and carefully remove that foil from the top of the juice. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us take it and drink. Would you please bow with me in a word of prayer? Lord, this passage sobers me to the reality that I don't always accurately see myself for who I truly am. Yes, positionally, I am sanctified and saved in Christ and perfected in Him, but I still wrestle with this body of sin And I often think I'm better than I really am. And I don't always accurately see you for who you are, God. I do not fear you like I should. And I want to ask for your forgiveness. I want you to unite my heart to fear your name. Lord, help us as a church, individually and corporately, to grow in godliness. Help us to fear you biblically. Help us to be drawn to you in a solemn way that our lives are lived in love and consuming devotion to, be, to glorify you in everything that we do. Help us to live, Lord, to be ready to die as if judgment starts tomorrow. Help us to live with that eternal mindset. And may our church continue to be a salt and light in the midst of this world that does not fear you at all. So Lord, may it start here. May we fear you here and we continue to proclaim your wondrous deeds and who you are to the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.